Hello, everybody. My name is Reese Karlinski, and this is Young History, episode 57 on Namibia. The capital is Windhoek, which actually means Windy Corners in Afrikaans, which is a kind of Dutch dialect or an African dialect of Dutch that came from when the colonizers came and colonized the land, people from Belgium and areas like that. And the name of this country actually comes from its geographical attachment to the the Namib Desert, which covers the entirety of this country's coastline. The Namib Desert is widely considered the oldest desert in the world, believing it's been there for over 100,000 years at least. The winds and fog off the coast of the Namib Desert make it one of the deadliest coasts in the world for sailors, where an estimated 10,000 ships have wrecked on the shore. This has earned it the title of the Skeleton Coast. And the San people, who were one of the original occupants of this land, and much of the land in sub-Saharan Africa, actually call the Namib Desert the land that God made in anger. And another thing about this country is that Mad Max Fury Road, as well as 2001, A Space Odyssey, were actually filmed here in Namibia because of its great sand dunes and very desert-like geography. So I'm not going to say much more right now because there's a lot of history to tell with this country, and I'm also very, very excited to tell it because there's a lot of strong figures, a lot of big moments, a lot of things you don't see in different countries, but you do see in some African countries. All sorts of things. So I'm really excited to get into it. And I just want to say thank you guys for being here. And one more time, my name is Reese Karlinski. This is Young History. And this is Namibia. Let's do this thing. Our origins begin with three people groups, the San, Mara, and Nama, who were the first inhabitants of this land until this day, still use the same hunting practices that they've used since their ancient times from thousands and thousands of years ago. Things started to change when different people groups started to migrate in. The Nama people arrived in the south, and starting in the year 1000 BC, the Bantu speakers, which are a taller, more warrior-like tribe than the San, Mara, or Nama people, started to come down from the north and started to really push out the San people and the other ones because they were much more skilled in fighting and much better at handling violent situations, getting into conflict, and they were taller and their language was more dominant and spread faster. So for a long time, there would just be intra-tribal wars and the Bantu would be pushing these people out until the first, and up and through the first thousand years of the Common Era. Then the first Europeans to arrive on this land were the Portuguese explorers. They actually arrived for the first time in the early 1400s and then touched again throughout the 1400s, not really doing it again until the late 1400s. They didn't have much influence as they didn't make an attempt to colonize it, and that wouldn't happen for another couple hundred years. The first European influence would start to come in the 1600s as the teachings of the Bible started to spread, as well as guns started to be traded in the area. The presence of guns made the tribal conflicts much more explosive and deadly than they were before, and Christianity became the major religion. The Orlan people in the southern part of Namibia actually received missionaries with open arms and accepted them into their land, but tribes like the Herero and Goabis did not, and this created a conflict between them. This actually led to the Nama Herero War of the 1880 where the two tribes fought because one was beginning to accept Christianity and shift with the times that were coming with the Europeans, and the other was standing on its original beliefs, saying that was the way to go, and didn't want to give up the old way. So war went on for only a short period between these two, because then the Germans stepped in. The Germans had already been poking their nose around since the 1870s. It wasn't until the year 1880 when they actually started to step in and deal with this conflict that their influence really started to be felt. German takeover and invasion of the land actually happened in 1884 because the Germans believed that they could find rich diamond veins here in the Namib coast of Namibia. That would be similar to the ones found in Kimberley Diamond Mine in South Africa, which was pretty much the deepest mine or claimed to be the deepest mine in the world at the time and was producing insane amount of diamonds, so the Germans wanted to crack away into that wealth. 
their chancellor at the time, Otto von Bismarck, who is one of the leading men who united the country of Germany, ordered the land to be taken over by Germans for another reason, which was that they wanted to stop the British from expanding their control into this part of the region of Africa. The native people, such as the Herero, didn't want the colonizers present at all, so they resisted any moves made by the Germans, and this ended up leading to the Herero Wars, or Nama Herero Genocide, which lasted from 1904 to 1908. The German killed many indigenous people here in search of these diamonds and in order to fight against any resistance that was there. The most harshly affected were the Nama and Herero people. In a four-year period that I just mentioned from 1904 to 1908, the Germans killed at least 80,000 people, and it wasn't acknowledged until, 2000, until the 2000s that it was indeed a genocide, and the genocide was largely executed under the leadership of Lothar von Trotta, who was honored at this time with a medal for his efforts by his government. But as of 2022, Germany paid Namibia around $1 billion in euros as reparations, but Namibia has accepted that this huge thing happened, this genocide happened, and because of that, they had it as a culture for a very long time. They started to tell their children of what, ha of what happened with the Germans. The story was passed down from generations. So the way that Namibia looks at Germany has always had that lens through it and always will because of this genocide that not only happened and was done by the Germans, but also tried to be swept under the rug by Germans as a war when it wasn't. It was much more of a genocide than anything else. After this, in later 1908, diamonds were discovered in multitude on the west coast of the Namib Desert, but the Germans were not able to crack into this wealth for very long because by 1915, they actually lost control of the land because in World War I, the Allies were defeating Germany all over the world, and since South Africa was part of the British Empire, it led to Germany falling and losing its control of what was called the German Southwest Africa, and it ends up becoming just Southwest Africa under the control of apartheid South Africa. South Africa was given rule of the land until it was quote-unquote ready to become independent, but there was no effort made by the South African government to prepare this country for independence. So because of that, Namibia would also have to suffer under apartheid, and racial segregation hit the country really hard, and it led to people getting restless. At endless pleas started to come into the face of the governor and the government and onto an international level because the people of Namibia or Southwest Africa at the time were begging for independence but were ignored by the United Nations. South Africa actually annexed the land under the nose of the United Nations because it started to not take care of it and then also not report on the changes that were happening within the country. And because of this, they were able to pretty much formally annex it without anyone stopping them. Apartheid rule also limited education for black children, it caused lack of employment for black men, and overall it lacked good access to healthcare for black people. So the apartheid regime, which was a hardcore version, just as bad if not worse than the segregation we saw in the United States for a very long time in the 1900s, was the standard way of practice of governing in South Africa, and it was spread to Southwest Africa, which, was, which became Namibia. And it was an absolutely brutal time, and there was very little black people could do at all without either being punished for it, charged for it, or arrested for it. So it was very hard to get by at all, and just like in South Africa, the white majority tried to rise and control complete power, but it would not happen. In 1962, the People's Liberation Army of Namibia was formed. They began standing up against the rule of South Africa and the racism that came with it. They ended up getting weapons and training from Cuba, Angola, and actually the USSR and the Soviets. And this was done in collaboration with a man named Sam Nujoma, who was a proud Namibian nationalist who grew up in the land and lived a life that was for the goal of forwarding his country and gaining their independence, all sorts of things like that. And he was the founding and leading member 
of SWAPO, which is Southwest African People's Organization, which was founded in April of 1960. He formed an armed group of this called PLAN, and he faced internal conflict. And in conjunction with the People's Liberation Army, he led a lot of attacks on South Africa and defensive strategies against South Africa and all of these things to stand up against South Africa. And this would go on from 1960 until 1975 when the pressures of the war started to really hit South Africa and the first ceasefire was agreed upon. But a mix of failed exchange of prisoners and the breaking of the ceasefire led to conflicts coming on and off up until 1989 when all the POWs from both sides had been exchanged. A few moments that also led up to this point where the war was beginning to end was when there was really bloody battles that were happening from 1978 to 1984, when there was huge losses for the SWAPO as well as for South Africa. Back and forth, big battles were being lost, hundreds of lives, thousands of lives were being lost. And another thing that tried that is constantly swept under the rug by South Africa and isn't talked about at all in history books is the Kasinga Massacre, which occurred in 1978, where South African forces used their air force to actually bomb a refugee town called Kasinga. The bombs killed at least 600 people, including innocent women and children that were not soldiers, and injured far more than that, which broke the thousand mark easily. But under the leadership of Sam Nujoma, who was widely accepted and loved by everyone in Southwest Africa, really started to change things. He rallied the people together, no matter what their descent was, no matter what tribe they came from. He was a great motivator for the military. He was well-educated in politics and diplomacy. So he was the one who not only went to speeches, but also ran for big positions like prime minister and president and really spearheaded the independence organization movement. And beyond that, he also did something else that was shocking, which was he actually advocated for the use of multiple political parties and general equality within the land. He didn't want the few white Europeans of the land to be mistreated, so he wanted equality, and he wanted equality for different political parties to come into power and it not be a single-party rule. So, as the ceasefire finally came true in 1989, the first election was held in later 1989, and Sam Nujoma won. On March 21st of 1990, independence was gained, and Nujoma became president. And this marks Namibia as the last African country to gain independence from the colonial period because they never got a real independence from Germany as it rolled right into apartheid South Africa. And then apartheid South Africa was running them just as brutally as Germany was. Post-independence, the early years, saw many steps taken by both Sam Nujoma and other parts of the government to really gain human rights across the board, establish policies that enforce them, establish strong judicial and executive branches, and this led to there being a wide range of political parties and other things in the government. Different people could come into power. And it led to a very acceptably free and open government that the people could get behind. There was one group that didn't stand behind the government for the whole time. This was called the Caprivi. The Caprivi are actually people that come from the kind of panhandle of Namibia. If you look at Namibia in the eastern territory, there's kind of this strip that makes it go from instead of just bordering Angola and South Africa and Botswana, there's this strip that goes out and helps it border Zambia and Zimbabwe as well, which is crazy because of how far away that is. But this strip connects this strip connects them to a farther away river and helps them get access to the east to the eastern part of Africa. So these people didn't believe that they wanted to be under the same government that was being ran by Nujoma or anyone else, and they wanted their own kind of separatist state. But the government of Namibia stood up against this. This was one of the kind of people that Nujoma had to stand up against. There was really disillusion within the ranks, both of the Swopa and Namibia in general, but he was able to either negotiate through it or use his power as president to fully get rid of this resistance, even if it was by force. And so the Caprivi revolt was crushed, and this people group and their kind of like, they weren't even a people group, but their 
movement was crushed and wiped away. And that gets us closer than modern day, where oil discovery actually happened in 2022. This discovery could equate to about 18 billion barrels worth of recoverable oil. If harvested, this would make Namibia the third largest oil producer in sub-Saharan Africa. There is a fear that this could lead to exploitation because Namibia is considered the second most economically unequal country in the world, second only to South Africa, where because of the apartheid regime that, despite being over, quote-unquote, still has its effects today, just like colonialism, this country could get taken advantage of. Um, the government could get paid off by England or another power that wants access to this oil, maybe even the U.S. There's also China that can get in there. A lot of foreign countries could get in. And then there could also be greed from the leaders in general, like we see with Eswatini and the tribes that, or I'm sorry, the countries that have more authoritarian leaders, the ones that take the power from themselves. You know, it's like a thing in Brunei, it's in Eswatini, it's all over the world. So that could happen here. That is the fear. But if it managed correctly, Namibia and its economy could make a huge change and become absolutely filthy rich. So in the present day, Namibia is the eighth largest producer of diamonds in the world and is the second largest producer of uranium in the world, which is also the largest export. And it is marked with a medium level of human development and it is one of the most free and peaceful countries in Africa after all the fighting that's happened and their late independence. And they actually had a $14 billion overall GDP, which is one of the higher total GDPs of sub-Saharan African countries. So compared to a lot of the areas in this region, barring Botswana, this country is doing very well. It's head, neck, and shoulders above a lot of the other area. Yes, there is that huge issue with there being a gigantic gap of wealth, but a lot of that comes from the leftovers of a late independence and a long time under the apartheid regime and having to follow apartheid rules. But Namibia is taking steps in the right direction, and if the oil discovery that is here, one, comes to fruition, and two, is managed well, the country could end up in a very, very good place. So that pretty much gets us to the end where I like to leave it the same way as I always do, which is kind of with like a lesson or a mindset to take away from this based on the history we have here. And with Namibia, that lesson is never accept something you do not feel is right. These people went from the brutal, brutal rule of the Germans, which came with a genocide that they tried to swipe under the rug, which killed 80,000 people. And then from there, they had to deal with the racist segregation style apartheid regime that kept white people up and black people suppressed and underneath the heel of a very small white majority, but they did not let this stand. People like Sam and Joma stood up to this. They didn't deal with the fact that apartheid South Africa was ruling them. They didn't go quietly into that. They fought, they fought, they stood against it. There was diplomacy, there was negotiations politically, and then they started to fight. They made their own organization of people that were not adhering to the government and were standing up for what they believed was the formation of their country, which would become Namibia, which to them was Namibia. So they fought for it no matter what it was. And that can be applied to you because if something doesn't feel right, if you feel like you're in a bad situation, you're not being treated right, you're being disrespected, don't take it. Don't. It doesn't matter what the situation is. It's okay to break up with someone, divorce someone, leave someone, move on from someone, or apply that to a job or any place you're subscribing to, a fraternity, a club, a sorority, any of those things. If you are in a position or an organization relationship of any sort, a relationship of any sort, be it friendship, whatever that falls underneath that umbrella, you can be taken advantage of. And there's a way that is right to be treated and a way that's wrong to be treated. And if you feel like you're being treated wrong or things aren't right or you're in a bad position, get out of it. It doesn't matter what it is, or at least try. Because I hope that you don't have to go through something as seriously as a fight as fighting against another 
country's government, and if you are, more power to you. But for most of us, that is going to be something like we're in a bad relationship or we have a friendship that isn't connecting well or we have people that are taking advantage of us at work. Don't take that. It's not fair. You work hard. You're yourself. And most of all, you're a person. So if someone's trying to take away from you your happiness or your freedoms or your rights or anything of that sort, stand up to it because even if that fight is hard, even if letting go of someone is hard, even if you have to get into a physical altercation, it may be hard. You may not even win. But the fact that you stood up for it and stood up for yourself and stood up for the fact that you felt you were being treated wrong, that's priceless. It's invaluable. So take that step. No matter what that step is, no matter how hard it is to take that step, you have to take it because whatever on the other side of you making that decision to fight against whatever is that shitty area in your life, whatever it is that you're struggling against, you're good. Like, you're going to be 10 times better, even if that struggle is long to get out of it. The struggle of getting out of a shitty situation, as opposed to the struggle of being in a situation, is 10 times better. You can't see it. I'm talking with my hands, but I literally am doing, like, a graph of, like, one is shooting up and one is a plateau. You don't want to be plateauing. You don't want to be stagnant if it's not good. You don't want to be stagnant at all. You should always be going up or trying to push forward and go up, no matter how hard that is. So if your situation is tough, if you feel like your relationship is, like, a apartheid rule in South Africa... Stand up to it. It doesn't matter what you have to do. Drop that person. Drop the relationship. Work hard on bettering yourself, but get out of it because you don't deserve that and no one does. So that's pretty much my two cents. That's what I take away with this country. Got me fired up, but maybe as a country I knew very little about going into, but now I know all sorts about its geography and what built it, what got it to the place that it is, and I just wanted to say thank you all for being here while I talked about it. So I hope you guys got something out of this. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope either the takeaway was good at the end or at some part of the history was interesting to you. So thank you all so much for being here. And one more time, my name is Reese Gartlinski. This is Young History. And that was Namibia. You guys have a great day.